rising inequality damages society tremendously. It leads to increased crime rates, worsened mental, physical health, increased suicide rates, polarization of society. It's, it's more of a breeding ground for, for populism and increased social unrest. And when it goes very gradual, you, you don't really see it day to day. And now there is a, just a bit of a spike with obviously the energy prices, cost of living. And so I think unless we really start changing the trend, some of the kind of pay gaps are, are growing exponentially. It's scary to think what social unrest is going to look like in the next 20, 30 years. This week's guest is Dr. Melanie van der Velde. Dutch-born, Scottish-based, Melanie is a wholehearted believer we can make this world a better place. As founder of Big Tree Global, Melanie and her team support business leaders and MBA students from around the world with insights and tools that help them create positive impact on key global issues grounded in the SDGs, while helping them boost business growth authentically. The insights Melanie applies in her impact workshops, masterclass and impact trips are based on her research for which she was awarded the Adam Smith Prize for PhD Excellence and nominated by Cambridge University. Melanie is also the author of Lead Like a Genius, 12 Ways to Ace Sustainability and Transform Our World, due out October 23rd. She's also the author of Love Your Legacy, Five Secrets of Businesses That Build a Better World. As a difference maker and domain expert, I'm so excited to speak to Melanie to learn more about how she's helping businesses empower people, deliver just payments, and create a positive impact on the planet, as well as human health and well-being. Now, over to Melanie. Welcome, Melanie. Great. Thanks, Mark. Now that we've established what you do, let's talk about, first of all, who you are as a human being. Who do you think you are? Yeah, something that friends always tend to say is I'm an internal optimist. And I think I'm not every minute of every day, but I think to the core, yeah, I think that's very true. I would say I'm also very much a deep thinker. I love analyzing things. And a few years ago, I came across something called SBS. Sensory processing sensitivity. I don't know if you've ever heard of no, it. Never heard of it. It's super it's interesting. First. It's a fairly recent thing. The research was done years and years back, but I hear more people talk about it now. It's the same as HPS. It's a similar thing. It essentially means that as a species, there's a thing, you know, of neurodiversity that we're all wired differently, like I guess bees in a beehive. And so what, what this means specifically is that both in the human, but as well as animal kingdom, about 10 to 15% are on the spectrum of processing sensory input and information very deeply. So I guess they, the role they would typically play is to watch out for danger, you know, mm-hmm. if in especially kind of instinct, instinct wise. And so for me, it was super interesting reading that. And I think I recognize so much of myself in there. So I think it explains why, you know, I do think very deep. People who are more at the end of the spectrum also struggle with watching violent films, for example. And <laughs> um, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't watch anything with, with violence in it. I tend to really feel other people's emotions, sometimes too much. I kind of have to tell myself, look, you know, just stay in your own, stay in your own body. A couple of, just a question on that. First, first of all, how do you test for it? And secondly, it sounds very much closely aligned with the word that we use a lot, which is just empathy or being an empath. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So empathy is a big part of it. But, but the key, I would say the key differentiator is very much the kind of deepness of processing, processing input. 
Mm-hmm. And so empathy tends to really come, come with it very much, but it's also, um, a lot to do with, with wanting to be authentic. You know, that, that is more important than maybe mm-hmm. fitting in, for example, and having to stay true to really strong values. And I, I would say probably my strongest value is a sense of, of injustice. If I come across things that are unjust, I find it hard to turn a blind eye. I find it, I find it hard as a child coming across poverty and carrying on with life, if you mm-hmm. know what I mean. So mm-hmm. in, in that sense, it just, in hindsight, it puts a lot of things for me. Yeah. It explains a lot to me, like why I've maybe made some of the choices that I've made or why I've maybe felt uncomfortable doing things that I loved. You know, and I sometimes think, oh, wouldn't my life have been so much easier had I just kept going with, you know, Turn a nice blind eye. Yeah, yeah, exa- yeah, exactly, exactly. But I think it's really interesting that we are all wired a certain way and you kind of have to be true mm-hmm. to who you are and roll with it. Yeah. It sort of leads nicely to the next question, is, which is who or what made you who you are? As you say, you can't, you can't turn a blind eye to where you, when you spot it injustice and it might be easier to do that but reflecting on your upbringing and Mm. i should say that you you do live in scotland and you you come from holland and you've got for anyone that's a a scot they can pick up that nice sort of um, combination of west coast of scotland meets uh, dutch in in your accent so maybe you could just reflect on that upbringing and any insights you have into what made you the person you are Mm -hmm. whether it be nurture as you say it's maybe just who you are yeah, the drive I feel, the things I do are very much, I think, a part of me. But I also think that, yeah, some experiences obviously have had an impact and maybe have strengthened certain beliefs and feelings. Yeah, so I, I indeed, I grew up in, in the Netherlands in a quite a fairly small town, I would say. So yeah, quite, quite safe, secure. And probably if you look at most of the world, an exceptionally equal society, particularly I think if you if you maybe looked at the bigger cities in Holland and it's very much changed now, but at the time it was a very equal equal place. And then later in life, living and working in different places like Scotland, for example, it's it's very very different. But also places like India, Kenya, I lived in Indonesia, China for a while, and I think having seen the contrast of the impact that has on people and how society is, I think it's given me a really good perspective on how things can be different. And we don't have to accept you know, accept them as they as they are. And that it's also yeah, I, I think, you know, when I see some of the inequality, like even here in Scotland, um, and how you see the different opportunities for children coming, you know, even in Glasgow, you know, maybe different pockets of of, of Glasgow, how unfair it is, but also how unnecessary it is and how mm. sad. Yeah, I just want to dig in a little bit more there because I've heard you talk about your memories, your early memories of injustice when you witnessed, as many of us did, that are old enough to remember the 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 shocking images that came out of Ethiopia during the famine in 1984, mm-hmm. when famously Bob Geldof stood up for the music industry and started to do something about it and created mm-hmm. a band aid that ultimately led to Live Aid. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting because. It just if, funny for me, just very recently, a good friend from primary school, Igor, got in touch and reminded me of that time. He said, actually said, Oh, do you remember 
that we fundraised for that. And there was apparently an article in the local newspaper with an interview. And I, I don't remember that, but I do remember it had a hugely profound impact on me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, for I think the rest of my life, because it wasn't something I was exposed to. And yeah, I, I found it just, just horrendous. And I remember we, like, we all had like a friendship diary kind of thing. And I must have been about nine. And I remember writing in it that one of the things I wanted to do in my life was to try and make a difference. Even if it was the drop on a, in Holland, you call it a, a, a cooking plate, that even that drop is, is worth it. And I, I really felt that very strongly. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's really interesting. You mentioned, you know, at the time, I think it got a lot of attention, poverty. Mm-hmm. It's obviously the whole, you know, Bob Geldof movement. And I, I think, I think it's quite sad that we've really lost that. I think it's also a problem that's been around for very long. So it's not new. But if we think about poverty, over half of our world still lives in poverty. And if we think about the attention, for example, COVID got, if you think yeah. about the number of people that died, it's, it's two and a half million on average mm-hmm. over the two first years. But every year still, more than 5 billion babies, toddlers, and preschoolers don't make it to their fifth birthday. And I, I get that that's not new and, you know, it's not exponential and it doesn't maybe touch everyone on a daily basis. But I think it's, 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 yeah, it seems quite crazy to me how little attention it's, it currently gets. Yeah. And although you'd witnessed all this, this injustice, a lot of people, you know, when the reality bites and they finish university and go, oh, okay, it's time to actually sort of get my head down and, and make a living. And, mm. People like Will McCaskill would often say, well, the best thing, most impactful thing you can do is make a lot of money and, and give it to charity and let the people who are doing the charities do the work. But you decided, having done your engineering degree, you made conscious decision that you had to personally do more than just make money and give it away. So as the question we ask is, what are you doing to achieve before you leave this mortal coil, as Shakespeare said? I wouldn't say I ended up on that path straight away. I also, you know, set out work, first working in business before really getting onto the path I'm, I have been now for a, for a while. But yeah, I, I would say the two main things to me, I'd say my friends and family are, you know, first. And, and I think the point you're making also about you also have to look after yourself, I think is, is an important point. And I, I have, yeah, at times struggled a bit with that balance. I think that's an important point. You can't really help someone else or try and make a difference if you're not looking after yourself, your own family mm-hmm. also. So it's totally fair enough. But I, I would say in terms of the impact I hope to make before, well, before I die, or if I, I like, I like thinking about the day that I'm 95 or so as an, an old, old lady, right? Well, yeah. that, so you're sitting back there in your, mm-hmm. your rocking chair reflecting. Yeah. That's the thought I had a lot when I had that niggle of, I love what I do, you know, work in an amazing place with amazing people. But when I'm 95, I can't look back and have not even tried to make a difference. Yeah. For, for me now, I feel I have learned, I have learned just some really, really valuable insights. I feel it's been a real privilege to have had years to really look into this in terms of what actually works well versus less well. How do you really do this stuff? And there are a lot of other people more and more people, you know, going on a similar journey, on a similar path. And so 
I would say my first thing is really I'd like to pass on the things I've learned and support people in, in, in that journey to, yeah, with the tools, the insights, the inspiration to create better outcomes. If you are going to invest time, money, energy into making a difference as part of a business, as part of an organization, how can you make that money go the furthest to really make a difference? And how do you balance that with your, your commercial goals? So that, that's the first thing. That's my, my main focus just now. And, and, and second to that, yeah, I have another big passion for, for travel. And after just looking at one of the, the companies that was part of my research called Grassroots Journeys in India is an amazing project. They work with rural tribal villages and create more economic opportunities by bringing travelers to these areas in a, in a really ethical and an ethical way. And so anyhow, I had set up another startup called Bee Journeys to boost organizations like that and to kind of make the link between travel companies that are trying to make a difference, but sometimes struggle. What can we do beyond litter picking, fundraising? Mm. And so one plus one is two. And so anyhow, I've been start, starting that company and it was, it was, it was starting to get somewhere and then COVID hit. And so I've, I've parked that and also felt I was spreading myself just then. But when it comes to the right time, I want to pick that back up and, mm-hmm. and, and move that along also. So many people go to resorts, whether it be, let's say in Bali or Thailand or even Spain and never venture out of the resort mm-hmm. touching the local economy yet ha- leave a, have a footprint. So is that, okay. is that the type of thing that you're talking about is actually sort of further down the road, establishing something that enables tourism to have a positive impact on local communities? Exactly, exactly. So there are, there are amazing projects like Grassroots Journeys. We, we actually identified so many amazing places in India, but you have them all around the world who are genuinely ethical. So like owned by the communities, the ownership lies there, the return, you know, goes back into the community. They restrict the number of travelers. So it doesn't impact the community too much. You know, they're very eco conscious. And so, but a lot of these projects are small and struggle to get international travelers, for example, who I think can have the most amazing experience going to these places, but they're sometimes hard to find and when like grassroots journeys knocks on the doors of travel companies abroad, they are unknown, they're small, so they're perceived as high risk. So the idea of B journeys is very much to identify these projects, but also to make sure to really look at, right, a lot of these companies claim that they are ethical, but are they really? And so really kind of having that trust factor. So helping travel companies identify where these projects are, what the trust levels are, but also around things like health and hygiene. So really what you can expect and put them more on the map. Your work is grounded in very robust and a significant piece of research. And it's often said that you know, life happens for us, not to us. Could you maybe just explain the circumstances that led you to the point of making that pivot in your life and, and starting down that, that, new, that new path? Yeah, so... Yeah, I worked first in a kind of big multinational company in based in the south of France, you know, really idyllic. And one of the markets I looked after was India, so I traveled a lot there. And 
I'd say it really hit me a lot during my trips that, you know, ultimately I was contributing to making more profit. But, you know, being ferried between hotel and offices, seeing the poverty on the streets. Yeah, for me, that didn't, that just didn't sit well. But I didn't know how to transition from business mm. to making a difference. And I didn't realize with a business background and education, what, what can you actually do? So it, t- it took me quite a few more years, actually, also working in some smaller startups that, yeah, funnily enough, you know, serendipity, uh, it, it was very much by chance that I ended up running a foundation in Kenya. So this was kind of two types of projects. We ran charitable projects for kind of orphans in the slum with the local schools to keep them at school, with school uniforms and food programs. And we also ran a, a, a This company. was in Kibera. In Kibera, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So one of the largest slums in the world. A lot of people know Kibera. I would say it's a city of, of children and young people. If you think about average life expectancies, 30 years old. And so, yeah, we worked with young women who had had no education. And if you grow up in a slum without an education, like many of the young women do, they're, the prospects can be pretty bleak. A lot of them are either married very young to older men. They don't particularly want to marry. Some end up in prostitution. It, it, it's pretty bleak. And so we worked with young women to provide them with training opportunities, with employment opportunities in fashion making and, and jewelry making. And I loved, I loved doing that. It was amazing. And it opened my eyes in lots of ways. It showed me that actually what, what's become a lot stronger for me over the years is I think that business cannot only offer very, very powerful solutions to issues like poverty and pretty much most of our global issues. But I also realize that actually if, if we don't, we don't get the structural solutions. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, for me, it was, it was really powerful to see that and, and imagining myself at the time I was a single mom thinking if I was in their shoes and I lived with my five-year-old boy in a slum, you know, I would appreciate being given donations, but you would much rather, and I think most people do, be given an opportunity to use your talents and contribute these and then be fairly rewarded in return. And that is a much more powerful solution. But I also realized it's, it's not easy. It's not easy to, to balance trying to make a difference and at the same time, run a solid, a solid, healthy business mm-hmm. that can sustain itself, never mind grow itself. And to get that balance right. So yeah, it, it opened my eyes in many ways. And it was a real drive, driver for me to want to learn more. And it was very much the, um, the driving force behind applying for a scholarship and to do my PhD to look, to look more into this. So now that you are, you've completed it and you're now working to, help businesses and leaders make the changes and implement the strategies and to enable them to become more sustainable and and have a positive impact rather than a negative impact on communities. Often the things that we don't think about when we buy products, we don't really think about what supply chain really means and the lives and the communities and the environments that uh, it, it damages. So you're helping businesses become more sustainable and, and and maybe implement using your tools and tactics the changes that need to be made to try and offset some of the damage that's maybe been done in the past. 
So maybe you could just explain why you felt that this was so urgent to do this. I think a lot of people will go and do their PhDs, publish your paper, the research, and then go and work for an NGO or go and work in a corporation mm-hmm. you know, that purports to be purposeful and say, oh, well, I'll go, and, I'll go and get a job there and then try and make some sort of micro changes within those businesses. Yeah. So I, I, I felt that it was a huge learning process to understand better what works well, what works less well, and, and spending that time really looking at, I would say, still the very few that get the balance right and genuinely make a difference. Versus the many that try, you know, with the very best intentions, but it doesn't always lead to the best outcomes. And for me, the whole point of, of doing research is only if it actually helps practice. For me, the whole research wasn't about doing a PhD or, you know, it, it was very much about learning this stuff, but then also passing it on. So we also at the time made some films about it to try and just, yeah, pass on some of the insights. Why, why I feel it's urgent. Well, I mean, there are so many urgent issues. I think climate change, everyone knows how important and urgent that is. We know that extreme weather events have tripled since 1960. We know that we've lost wildlife 68% over the last 50 years. Coral reefs are expected to decline by 70 to 99%. And these are the things I think a lot of people are aware of. We have many other pressing issues. Just very recently, just the last few weeks, thankfully, there's been the the, the treaty by the UN on plastic pollution. So that's a major step forward. But indeed, if we don't change things drastically, the um, predictions are that by 2050, we have more plastic in our oceans than fish, if you measure it by weight, which is a horrible thought. But also plastic by then will account for 15% of, uh, of emissions of the global mm-hmm. carbon budget. So there's that, but there's also air pollution. We spoke about poverty that leads to 5 million deaths per year of uh, under five-year-olds, which is more than double the, the deaths by COVID, but air pollution leads to 6.8 million each year. So there are some major issues. And I, I think we're, we're fairly well aware of some of the environmental issues. I think poverty, I think often gets underemphasized, but I think what gets most underemphasized is the, is the rising inequality. I, I think it's, it's a bit like, you know, that fable of boiling a frog, you know, where a frog is in, 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 in lukewarm water and as it gradually increases, it's too late before it jumps out. And I, I think it was a bit the same with, with, with climate change. And I think we're thankfully now, you know, sadly it had to kind of reach crisis level. And I think with the rising inequality, we're still totally unaware mostly of, of what it's actually doing to society. And uh, Joseph Stiglitz, who was the chief economist at the World Bank, won the Nobel Prize and wrote a brilliant book, The Price of Inequality. What he says and what the other experts really show is that rising inequality damages society tremendously. It leads to increased crime rates, worsened mental, physical health, increased suicide rates, polarization of society. It's, a, it's, it's more of a breeding ground for, for populism and increased social unrest. And, you know, when it goes very gradual, you, you don't really see it day to day. And now there is a, just a bit of a spike with obviously the energy prices, cost of living. And so we see a bit more now of, you know, the strikes in the UK. Um, but, you know, there's issues around the world in Chile, Peru. And I think, 
as Joseph Stieglitz also says, if unless we really start changing the trend, some of the kind of you know pay gaps are, are growing exponentially. It's scary to think what social unrest is going to look like in the next 20, 30 years. That there's been so much written about by either journalists and writers like Stiglitz about the systemic issues that we face that we never considered the implications of capitalism when capitalism was embraced and, mm -hmm. and, and the impact of globalization. But what's beyond capitalism? Can capitalism mm -hmm. right itself or do we have to move to a more, let's say, collectivist, distributed um, structure? But rather than getting into that sort of discussion, you know, you've you've talked brilliantly there about the sort of the, the real systemic sort of issues we have in the planet that were identified by the UN in 2015 when they established the, the global goals mm -hmm. to hit our targets of 2050 and hopefully avoid the increase in temperature by 1.5 degrees by 2030, which doesn't look like we're going to meet that. But I've heard you say that um, that we do have to somehow reimagine the capitalist free market system and that there's a flaw in the machine. You quoted Adam Smith in our first intro call where you said that free markets can only operate with strong principles of justice. And what should say the Scottish economist, mm -hmm. what do we have to do realistically to affect change in policy or create the political will to drive the legislation needed or the agreements like the one you said on the oceans it was is a, mm -hmm. an amazing step forward around to create more justice mm -hmm. yeah exactly so i i think it's really interesting because to me it's really the, the essence of of many of the issues that we have indeed adam smith suggested the free market economies and i think partly it's really a clever system and I also think that now profit has a really bad name and it isn't only bad. The drive towards profit, as he suggested, the invisible hand, you know, mm -hmm. to really drive energy resources efficiently around markets, around market demand. There's so much in that. But indeed, he said this can only work with strong principles of justice. Otherwise, society must crumble into atoms. Mm -hmm. And he sadly wrote a lot of that in a different book from his Wealth of Nations. He wrote it in a theory of moral sentiments. And that is the bit that we haven't implemented. And I think that has led to so many of our issues and others to come. And I think is also the answer to actually now bring that balance back. And so if you think about what is justice then actually, and what is justice in trade and in business? And I would also say like some really key People around the world, like Mandela, have also really emphasized that. That is the answer, right, to addressing poverty. And so the essence of justice, as it was defined by Roman law, is, is to render each their dues. And so I think if you look at, if you divide it up, to me, on, on the one hand, you have poverty, inequality, social exclusion, and all the related SDGs like zero hunger, you know, health and well-being, and and the other side, you have the environmental issues, so not damaging, you know, the planet that we live on. And like the Brundtland Commission said, you know, it, it really justice, environmental justice is not compromising the needs of current and future generations. So the, the plastic pollution treaty, the um, mm -hmm. emissions, these are all not a matter of, oh, how charitable, but they're a matter of justice. And similarly, you know, if you produce products that are harming people's health, by bleaching cotton tampons, for example, that are, you know, is linked, linked to cancer. You're using dioxin, you're, you're releasing dioxin in the environment. 
another, you know, really one of the most polluting substances. You're not allowed to harm other people in our day-to-day life, but why can you do that as part of business? We've kind of become conditioned through our system that profit is okay, you know, regardless of of the impact. But that's the piece that we're missing. And I, and I think, because you hear a lot of people also talk about, we need to stop economic growth, and that's the answer. And I think it's not how much we grow. It, it, it's it's what we grow and how we grow. If mm-hmm. If you grow certain product services, but you're not harming the environment in the process or people's health, and you're doing it in a way that you are including people, you're including areas that need economic development, you are, you know, adhering to just payments in your supply chain within your organization, then it's fine to grow. It it can be very beneficial. So I I think economic growth, profit, these can be very, very positive things, but it's how we do it. And I think that's really the core of it is that that piece of recognizing that these four pillars actually Mm. are, it's not a nice to have. It's a, it's, it's, it's a matter of justice. I suppose many people that would be defenders of the system would say that we maybe just weren't as aware of the externalities and the damage that was being done. But now that we are, there is no mm-hmm. excuse. We have yeah. to unleash our imaginations, our creativity to come up with new solutions. And there's plenty of examples of really inspiring, sustainable businesses doing great work, both in terms of the around the pillars that you're talking about. But there's so much more to be done. So I think it would be really good for you to maybe just go into a bit more detail about the the specific model that you are using to inspire businesses and leaders that you call your impact wheel as a as a tool that can be used to tease out and impact initiatives in each business related to the con- their own particular context. I would say it's one of the first steps towards effective effective initiatives to look at these four four key areas and why i think that can be very useful is that a lot of the frameworks out there are very detailed and i think you can lose sight of the big picture and the links and actually you know what's really effective yeah and i and so i also think what you see a lot and one thing i very fa- found very much with my research is that we see a lot of examples dealing with symptoms. And sometimes it's necessary temporarily, but I love the analogy of, you know, if you're running a bath and it's starting to overflow, you're not going to mop up the floor and forget to turn off the tap. It seems Mm -hmm. insane, right? It's just not very clever. You wouldn't do that. But if you look at, you know, the mountains of plastic entering our oceans, if you look at poverty inequality, that is exactly what we see a lot. And so the impact wheel is, is focusing on, on the, the core areas that where a company can tackle the SDGs at its root. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then also creates knock on effects on related SDGs. And it's sometimes easier to give an example. I, I like the example of if you think, for example, about the SDG zero hunger or the SDG health and well-being. And let's say, you know, if we talk about Kibera, if you live in the slum and you have no shoes, that can be fatal. If you've got a wound in your foot and you walk about, you can very likely end up dying because you also don't have access to antibiotics, for example. And that happens, you know, a lot. So what, what, what would be the solution to that? So if you're working with a framework 
or you look at all the SDGs and you just think about, right, how am I going to tackle the second SDG, zero hunger, or how am I going to solve this issue of these children not having any shoes? You would likely think, okay, well, let, let's start providing shoes or find a way to provide shoes. And so you see examples like, Tom's. like exactly like Tom's shoes, buy a pair, give a pair. It tends to work well in terms of PR. And we see a lot of companies adopting that model, buy one, give one or buy one, give a percentage, but not really thinking, is that really fixing the issue? And so there's a woman, uh, a businesswoman called Bethlehem Tillahun, an Ethiopian businesswoman, uh, who set up So Rebels, which is now Africa's fastest growing footwear brand. Um, and I love how she puts it. She asks, if you give a child a pair of shoes and it grows out or wears out of it, then what does it have? But if you give the parents a job, they will always have shoes. And that child might not need shoes. You know, it's, it's, they might need antibiotics. They might need a school uniform. So what she has done is she's set up manufacturing facilities in areas in Ethiopia that need economic development. And she gives people three times the industry average wage, medical care for the whole family. It's also all, all the facilities are based on, on solar power. They're all handmade. So it's, it's, it's zero emissions. It's brilliant. Their whole model is really sound inside and outside. And again, a really inspirational example. And if you look at that, by doing that, by providing, so empowering people and just payments. So these two kind of yeah. first quarters of the impact wheel, you're not just structurally fixing poverty, but you have knock on effects on related SDGs like zero hunger, like health and well-being, you know, children who can now also attend school. And it's, it's so it tends to have these, these synergies. And there's interesting research that also shows that if you're more targeted with how you tackle the SDGs, your investment can lead to a 200 to 400% higher impact return on investment. And it's exactly the same with the bottom half of the wheel, which is the third quadrant is, is, is impacting the planet. The fourth is health and well-being. Mm -hmm. By using the questions in the impact wheel, you, you, ta you target these issues much more at its root and you create these mm -hmm. positive um, Just knock on effects. What was the, f the first quadrant was called? The first quadrant is empowerment. Empowerment, yeah. So that, that that I understand, and I can see that the example you've given, I can see it being implemented very effectively to create more opportunity and to address the systemic problems in places like Africa. But how does that manifest when you're a business, let's say, in here in Texas or in New York or even in the East End of London, when you start to actually sort of look at your wheel and mm -hmm. ask questions around, answer the questions around empowerment and just payments, how, how would business leaders approach it? There has, presumably it has to be implemented in a, in the context of the business and where yes. its location is and where its customers are. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I would say usually when I work with business leaders more indeed in, in, in a range of countries, it's really the questions that you apply and the examples also that you apply to your own context. And there's so many mm. different, different types of initiatives. So yeah, obviously, you know, Ethiopia sounds very far away from home, but you have companies in the UK, for example, like Goodwill Solutions in Northampton. They're a logistics company and they work with empowering people who come from marginalized areas, like typical housing schemes or also have been to prison, for example. 
We have Brigade, an amazing restaurant in London who work with people from a homelessness background. Their sea talents in the Netherlands, they empower people who have visual or hearing impairments. There are companies that, Tony's Chocolonely's, that work with their suppliers in the cocoa sector in West Africa, you know, who actually pay them. I buy that chocolate. It's in my local Whole Foods. Brilliant. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So simply by, you know, that second quadrant of just mm-hmm. payments, really paying those farmers, the plantations mm-hmm. for not some kind of minimum price that someone has decided, but really for what they're due, what, what their contribution is to that chocolate bar, the difference that makes to those people, their families, the workers on these plantations is, is en- enormous. So, so the, the wheel, it starts with what can you do within your own company? The second part mm-hmm. of the wheel is, is looking at your supply chain. And often that's where you can have really big impact, but also in a wider context. And so we kind of start inside and out. And there's a range of questions that we ask. We look at different examples and you could see different, you see different things. But once people start making the links, I didn't realize mm-hmm. actually that the, these really were the issues in the world. I didn't realize what an impact my company can have on inequality by how, you know, how I'm paying people within my company. Or if we look at our supply chain and yeah, you can, you can have examples where a CEO, for example, who's doing already amazing stuff around the environment. You have a European company that does a lot around, you know, electric car leasing, for example, who says, right, okay, actually, do you know what? I'm going to make my company employee owned because, yeah, I, I don't want to be contributing to this widening pay gap and be a part mm-hmm. of, of closing that gap. So there is a range of, of, a range of things. And I think it often takes just being inspired by the examples around the world that show what can be done, the Mm -hmm. outcomes you can have impact-wise, but interestingly also that show it makes often real sense from an economic perspective also. Presumably there's a a large education component to that because that's key what you just said there, that it makes makes economic sense because we'll go back to the word of profit. And so many businesses, particularly obviously in the private sector, are driven by their so-called obligations to shareholders. And although we talk about stakeholder capitalism, we're still driven very much by shareholder capitalism of mm-hmm. delivering quarterly revenue targets, maximizing profits often to the detriment of um, to communities, people and the planet. And it is it's something that I think has led to what Jeremy Tamamini, an upcoming guest, calls the climate paradox, that although we're seeing great examples of uh, of progress the ones that you're mentioning where people, products and policies are changing. Emissions, social inequity and environmental health continue to, a lot of the data suggests it's continuing to worsen. So uh, there is a, an urgency to educate maybe the markets to investors, big institutions that invest in these large companies, that there are things to be done. What do you think can be done or what impact can we have to accelerate the types of things you're talking about? I mean, your wheel, you're giving examples there and they're, they're probably medium sized businesses, but I suppose what we really need to see are the large corporates starting yeah. to embrace this meant mm-hmm. this, this, this model because the, the 17 SDGs, that all looks good on a, on a presentation and a PowerPoint deck and, and maybe on a website. 
But the reality is you, you need to give people who are working in businesses the, the tools to implement change and to mm -hmm. think on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that's what's great about your wheel is making you ask questions that maybe the 17 SDGs don't. Yeah, exactly. I think also the SDGs are not just targeted at businesses, but you know, also at governments, for example. And so I think it simplifies it simplifies it. Yeah, and exactly. And I think that can sometimes tease out the kind of things that really make that difference. Um, I think you're touching on a really important piece. I think the investment piece is, is, is one of the most critical ones. If we keep that, that, that focus of we need quick gains, we need to have mm -hmm. maximize our profits this quarter. It's really, really hard to shift to the type of initiatives that take time to pay off. But what is for me super, super hopeful is that we actually now start to see some of the bigger companies really showing not just the outcomes from the impact, the environmental, social piece, but also from an economic perspective. And so I think Unilever is an interesting example. They're not the most progressive. So I think you often see the kind of smaller, medium-sized companies being much more the pioneers. And I think mm -hmm. they're the ones that can show us the innovations. But they are quite progressive compared to the vast majority of, of, of multinationals. And what I find super interesting is that if you look at them, when they started their sustainable living initiative and their sustainable living brands, they now make up 70% of their turnover growth. Um, so that's interesting. But I think the really interesting thing is if you compare them to so their big rival, Kraft Heinz 3G, who are typically mm -hmm. known for, you know, what you're saying, that short-term gains, you know, slashing, buying over companies, slashing costs, usually all the sustainability initiatives in those companies are stripped out. And as the Financial Times calls that model, very much starving companies from investment for that short-term gain. And they also try to take over, it was a hostile takeover bit of Unilever, really lucrative bit, but thankfully they decided not to sell. It's a and private it, equity company, isn't it? 3G. 3G, yeah. Yes, that's right, yeah. that's right, yeah. yeah. And so Kraft Heinz, which is Unilever's biggest rival at the time, a lot bigger. If you then compare them over the last, well, since 2017, so that's like the last six, seven years, the money invested in Unilever over that time has yielded over 400% more return on, on people's money. So it, it does make sense from an economic perspective. If you look at, if you go beyond the big, the big gain next quarter, maybe two quarters ahead. But if you look at yeah. two, three years, five, seven years ahead. So I think mm -hmm. that's the important, important shift. Yeah. So it's interesting that David Risley, my previous guest talked about the lack of justice as being a fundamental issue we have to resolve. You talk about it. Mariana Koval, who runs the Invest NYC program that distills the 17 goals in, in New York down to six core pillars as well to implement sort of more just policies and create economic opportunity in New York, talks about injustice. And also Lenore Anderson, who I'm interviewing tomorrow, who's the co-founder and president of the Alliance for Safety and Justice which is an advocacy organization that looks at smart policy reforms 
with grassroots organisations to address the reliance on incarceration and, and understands the systemic issues that lead to crime. And everyone sort of, it seems to be a word that, that is touching so many different, different aspects of, of society that unifies people working in different areas, whether it be a, what you're doing or whether what Lenore's doing or Mariana. And this is one of the things I think I'm finding as we start to interview more people, you start to see the connective tissue between a lot of what they're doing. And rather than just simply, you know, putting your head down and you can only speak to so many businesses and Lenore can only speak mm. to so many organizations and Marianne is working in New York, mm. to be able to take on the scale of these large corporates mm-hmm. and to affect change, maybe we need to create some form of organizational or connection between the people that are doing work on the ground that where their collective power is amplified. And the way I see it is we think about the impact that labor unions had in the early stages of the evolution of the capitalist movement. Maybe what we need is a new type of union, a union of difference makers of domain experts that know and can start to create a collective narrative and hold hold these organizations accountable. And not just accountable, but to canvas them and to encourage them and to nudge them and to try and accelerate the changes. How can we address the poverty, the inequality, and the social exclusion and this overall injustice at, at scale? So it's just a just a yeah. thought. No, no, for sure. Talking. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think there are some organisations that you know globally, you know, all come from different angles. I guess, like you have the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, more from an economist perspective. I mean, I think it really ultimately the ultimate I think is to have like UN treaties on each of these four areas, and I think we see a lot now on the environment in the invent- environmental area. We see also a bit more in other areas, but but by far not enough and legally binding because it's also hard sometimes. Like I think the European Union is doing a lot, for example, they're quite progressive. But what you then see is after Brexit that some companies move their head office to London, you know, because there's uh, less strict regulation here on the environment and again on, on also workers' rights, for example. Yeah, so... It's a hard one. I think ultimately, I think legislation has a massive role to play. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I think it much more comes down to people actually being aware and understanding the issues. And I, I genuinely believe, like the people I tend to work with in the masterclasses and the in the workshops, I don't think the majority of business leaders want to want to exploit people or damage the planet. I think the vast majority wants to do the opposite, but don't always see the links. And once they become aware, they make changes. So I think, yeah, I think that is a very powerful approach. And I I, I think we're kind of at early adopters stage still, Yeah. but we're hopefully heading towards early majority. And I think, it's, isn't it something like you need 25%? Yeah. Once mm-hmm. we get to the 25%, then the rest will come along. And I think it is those pioneers making it more mainstream, working more with the bigger companies and hopefully faster than we go. But I think, yeah, it, 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 I do think we'll get there. Yeah. Until we get there, as you say, we still, there's a massive reliance on philanthropy, 
which is there really to offset some of the, 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 the inequities and the injustice and the damage that's done to the less fortunate, mm-hmm. whether nationally or internationally. But Anand Diodardis wrote a book back in 2018, a lot of press, really good book called Winners Take All, where he really mm-hmm. uh, very eloquently derided the, the concept of doing wealth by doing good, something that a lot of purpose-driven organizations embrace to, as their purpose mantra. And really criticizing, and he did so at Davos, which is funny, at the World Economic Forum, that how philanthropists and their dollars have shaped public policy and what he sees as a, essentially a glaring hypocrisy among the affluent elites yeah. that, while well-meaning, can, mm-hmm. and claiming to improve society's inequalities, they don't actually challenge the structures that actually preserve the inequality and, and maintain this injustice, as you've so clearly pointed out, because they don't want to jeopardize their own privileged positions. Does this ever come up in the conversations that you're having? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, like I, I do sometimes struggle with that whole giving back, you know, and, and I, I need to keep remembering that I, I do think the vast, vast, vast majority, it's not knowingly. And isn't that also like the legal thing? If you've knowingly taken someone else's share. So essentially, it's really you know, the Tony Chocolonis example, I think is lovely. I don't know if you know the story behind them, but so the guy who originally founded it, Tony van der Koeken, was a journalist and he went to West Tony, Africa. So for people know, I'll put it in the show notes, but it is a lovely chunky chocolate bar called Tony's. Yes. Tony's yeah. Chocolonis, that's right. For, from and Belgium. Actually, Holland. Holland, it's Holland. Holland, okay. it's Dutch, yeah. So Turn van de Koken, he, he was a Dutch journalist and he went out to the plantations to investigate child slavery. A lot of these plantations are notorious for child labor. They get paid so little. The, the farmers live in extreme poverty and, and there is a lot of child labor. And so he was really shocked with what he saw. He came back to the Netherlands and he recorded himself eating chocolate and took the case to, to court to say, look, I have knowingly purchased an illegally manufactured product. And so you need to arrest me and, and put me in jail. And he got some of the, the children that worked on the plantations to testify against him. However, the case was dismissed for being outside the jurisdiction. But so he, he then founded Tony Chocolonely to show you can actually make chocolate differently. And so if you're now running a chocolate company, and you are still perpetuating poverty in West Africa on those plantations by paying not what, what those plantations are actually due, right, for the contribution that they make. Similarly, if you're a supermarket or an Amazon, for example, you pay typically 4% to the farmers in South America, you know, for the fruit that we eat. Dairy farmers in the UK struggle to break even. You see it with a lot of writers, songwriters, creatives. They get paid so little. So, you know, if you're Jeff Bezos and you're then donating a lot of your wealth, it's still very admirable. I think if you've not knowingly first actually, I think you've you've built wealth. If you build wealth and you have actually paid everyone their due in the process uh, and you haven't damaged the planet and you've, you know, uh, empowered people who who also need opportunities and who also have the talents and the right skills, then I think accumulating wealth is wonderful and applaudable. And and if you're then also giving giving to charity, 
I think it's, it's fantastic. But if mm-hmm. you have accumulated a lot of that wealth because you actually have accumulated that wealth because you've taken the share that actually someone else is due. Yeah. I struggle with that. And I know that if it's not knowingly done, okay, you can't really blame someone. And I think for a lot of people, it is just not really understanding the links, but I think it's important that we create that awareness. And I think what's also really interesting is if you look at the psychological profile of humans, 85% is what is called bound by the norm of fairness. So that if you are behaving in a way that is unfair to the other, 85% of us, it, it damages our own health mentally and physically if we did that. So mm-hmm. I think once we're aware and we, we still do that, it's not good for ourselves. And there's only 15% who lacks. We were talking about empathy at the, at the start. There's only 15% of the human population who, who it doesn't impact their physical mental health if you are being unfair. So ultimately, I, I think we are wired to do things fairly. It's just that we really haven't completely got that, those links clear and that we understand it. And I think that once we do, I, I genuinely think one day we'll look back and we'll think that this is as silly as women were not allowed to vote or apartheid mm-hmm. or slavery. You know, I, I yeah. think we will one day will realize this was crazy. This was absolutely crazy. Yeah. That leads me to ask the question around the the role of education and awareness of changes that need to be, it has surely has to be essential. So this is a multi-decade, multi-generational, like you just talked about, you know, big social and equity-based issues like a, apartheid and women's rights. It doesn't happen overnight. So you know, you're working with business leaders. Is there a, a role to start to, to somehow embrace this as part of our education system, yeah. whether it be through schools, through parents? How do you take this forward? And I know you're you're publishing your books, but just to add to your to, add to your labour, how can mm-hmm. you start to reach out to, whether it be in Holland or in Scotland, to educate educators and say, look, we have to start talking about this in schools. For for sure, in schools, yeah, I think in schools is important. And again, there's a lot around the environment now at schools, a lot more, and probably can do so much more. But I also think, for example, at MBA programs, these are obviously mm. the future people working in business, for, exa- for example. And same for marketeers, for example. I was running a program at, you know, at an MBA course and it was an elective module. And the students were saying they couldn't believe how this was really at the end of their program, an elective module, mm. how this should be one of their front first and foremost modules. For, yeah. for everyone to at least have that, you know, understanding and, and awareness. Yeah. So I think we have a lot of steps to take. How, how do we get there? Um, yeah. I, I mean, there's obviously a whole role for policymakers, you know, to take that on board also and, and bring that more to, to schools and universities. Yeah. What's your thought about the B Corp movement? Because the, the questions they have to go through and the assessment criteria they get uh, judged by is really robust. Mm-hmm. Presumably that covers off all the key areas of your wheel. Yes, I would say it It does cover a lot of it. I think it's a really good model for sure. I think what's also great about it is that it's really gathered momentum and it's becoming a lot more well-known. 
And I think mm-hmm. it's, it's a good vehicle for organizations to, um, to embrace it and to do a lot of, of, of take on a lot of good initiatives. I think what is sometimes tricky with the B Corp model is that it's again, it's a very detailed framework. Mm-hmm. You get points, for example, for recycling. But it doesn't then, you know, it doesn't give you that picture of, look, but let's think about, you know, the whole system. Mm-hmm. I can actually, you know, I, I love the example of Schiphol. Uh, I don't know if you know this, this example who, you know, use a lot of light, like lots of airports. They yeah. had a lot of criticism last year, but they were really progressive in terms of they wanted to be like the most sustainable airport. Anyhow, one of the things they did was, they, you know, I don't know if you know that light is intentionally designed for obsolescence, a lot of light products. The Phoebus cartel where manufacturers came together and intentionally reduced the lifespan of, of light bulbs to sell them more frequently. And we see that in a lot of, a lot of products, but light very much so. And so they went to Philips, their supplier and said, we no longer want to buy light products, but we want to buy light as a service. So give us a three year contract. We pay a fixed rate. You are responsible for the energy bill. You're responsible to replace any fixtures and fittings. And that incentivized Philips designers to develop more durable light products, to develop Mm -hmm. products that are where fixtures and fittings are much more easy to replace in parts as opposed to replacing the full product and more energy efficient products. And so they reduced uh, fixtures and fittings usage by 50% and energy use by 75%. And so- Great story. It's a great story. And there are so many great examples like that, that really, really change the model. They turn the model on its head. And so that I would say is sometimes tricky with a big detailed framework like that is that, right, you get points for recycling. I'm going to recycle my light waste more, but it doesn't then really make you think about, right, okay, but let's take a step back. What's your system here? Can you actually, you know, prevent waste in the first place? Can you prevent usage of, of energy? Or can you reduce that? And so by using these examples and by using certain questions where you take more of a kind of whole systems approach, you can come up with much more effective effective initiatives and I think have a better return on your investment. And mm-hmm. and that is, again, the same, like, you know, you can be a, a buy one, give one model and you would get good points for that. But it doesn't then tease out that, right, okay, but what, what more can you do? You know, if you're a press and you're donating, you know, leftover food to the homeless, that's great, right? But can you also maybe like a brigade model open up to vacancies in every of your kitchens and work with people from youngsters from deprived areas, for example, and train them up and, you know, support them into college or with college fees or, do you know what I mean? The, the kind of more structural yeah. solutions. You're, you're publishing your new book. As you talk about these examples, it makes me think about these tools that we've had as working in advertising, working in brand workshops with clients to help them spark innovation and creativity. And they're often little examples and they're triggers. In the same way that we need to spark the imaginations of organizations to think differently and embrace innovation around the SDGs and using your four quadrant example is your book going to become a could it become a a a tool set to help companies take these examples and go oh well wait a minute if skipple are doing that we could do the same thing exactly that's right yeah exactly can you talk a bit about your book then yes i i I would say so my new book lead like a genius Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah i think maybe good to start just with with that like 
genius? Why? What, what makes a genius? And yeah, if you think about geniuses like Mozart, Einstein, Da Vinci, Albert Rothenberg at Harvard did a study around that and, and tried to find out like, why were they so exceptional compared to other really talented people and their peers? And so what he discovered was that the thing that they do differently is that they pursue the unity of opposites as part of a whole. And that sounds a little bit abstract, but our brains are wired that when we are confronted with opposites, we prefer to see one or the other. And that's the complexity. And so when we see a profit-driven business, we see that predominantly. And there's maybe an element of sustainability or making a difference. If we see a social enterprise, we think they shouldn't really be making money. That's almost dirty, you know. Whereas actually the social enterprises, the very few that are also very commercially sound, they have far better outcomes also in terms of their impact. Yeah, so and anyhow, so my, my book is very much, I would say, I've tried to simplify as much as possible the the key ingredients that those most successful companies apply. And so the first one is is really indeed how do you tackle the root cause so that wheel really teases out those initiatives. You know, like the light as a, as a service example, Schiphol, mm-hmm. you know, here in Singapore does the same with air conditioning. But there are other really innovative examples. And yeah, exactly. What we do is in a workshop, but the, the book tries to tease it out also, is, is how do you apply that to your own context? If you're donating laptops to charity, great. But let's look at the whole system. What happens to these lap, lap, laptops later down the line? And we know that they often end up in Africa and Asia on e-waste site where, you know, it has huge harm to people's health. But could you not like the leasing scheme of Schiphol and Care in Singapore, could you not do the same with laptops, you know, whereby Mm -hmm. laptops are first of all designed much more to be durable and repairable. And so that whole kind of circular whole systems thing. But there are other key, I would say that is a first key thing is really tackling the root cause as much as possible. But Mm -hmm. then the other, the other, there are a few other key factors that can really help towards better outcomes and, when we spoke with Samantha last time, one of those is very much balancing that with a, the what I call the good profit drivers. There mm-hmm. are really key things about the drive towards profit that actually are not only really important from a, a profit, you know, a economically sound model, but that also tend to lead to better impact at the end of the day as well. So the book provides simple, a kind of simple framework that takes you step by step through those key factors. I love it because um, it's, again, a thing that's come up quite a bit on with guest interviews is the fact that data doesn't change behavior and mm-hmm. stats, mm-hmm. it's stories. And what you're doing is you're collecting all these lovely story examples of possible, what is possible using the right, having the right will and having the right strategies and then implementing the actions needed to affect change. I think it's obviously why the work you're doing is so important, working with individual businesses, but it's then how do we share that, that more? How do we get it you know, out into the world? And, you know, you've got the SDGs and you've got the UN and, and everything, but there is amazing work being done around the world. I didn't know the story of Tony's and, and that, that background, but when you hear it, you go, wow, mm. that, that should be shared with other people. And they go, well, yeah. we could take the same actions and we could learn from them and take it the same way that we talk about how 
code is built and people around the world will go, well, there's no point rebuilding a piece of code when you're building a, a, an application. We'll just take it because someone else has done it and they shared it on GitHub. That's why I believe that it's so important for, to, for us to build a, a database where people can go in and search for examples that you have and say, well, we want to do something that has an impact on our use of energy and therefore light. Oh, wow. Hey, look what Skipple did. Well, how could we learn from that? So how could someone, let's say, in, in here in Texas, in Austin Bergstrom Airport, oh, you know, I'm going to speak to Carl Popham, who's head of Austin Energy, and say, hey, Carl, did you know about this? Why can't you go and speak to the guys at Austin Bergstrom and get them to do the same thing? Yeah, exactly. That, that, that shouldn't be something that relies on someone like me to, mm-hmm. to have those conversations. It should be a, a database where people can go and find and discover these examples of impact code to unlock the changes that happen. But anyway, that's a sort of slightly different yeah, thing. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I did want to talk to you about a project. It's called Project Drawdown. I think it's a book of examples that Woody Harrelson made into a film. I don't know if you've seen it. No, no, I haven't. Project? It's called Project Drawdown. Drawdown. Okay. Yeah. It's something I think you should have in your in your armory. Mm, it's yeah, a, a really big, thick book of examples of the simple things we can do to address climate issues. Not necessarily for businesses, but it's more environmental, more on the probably the planet side of things. But it is a really good resource, and it, and it's it's full of just simple examples of things we could do that would affect and accelerate change. So yeah, I wanted to mention that. So on a personal level, how do you remain re- resolute and resilient and and deal with? Like everyone is a human being. There are always moments of where you face fragility and doubt when you're trying to sort of change the world and you mm-hmm. come up against barriers and yeah. uh, and ob- obstacles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. I definitely have days where I think, oh, you know, oh, wouldn't it be nice to still be in my uh, cushy job in the south of France? And yeah, I, I don't think I've chosen the easiest path, but. I just know in my core, it's absolutely 100% the right one for me. I sometimes find it tricky yeah, when certain things are in the news. And I think we get a lot of the negative stuff in the news. But like you said at the start, there's so much positive stuff and proof that we can absolutely get there with things. So yeah, I, I, I try not to look too much at the news or social media, usually like once a week, but keep focus more on the big, the big picture, the kind of core... Yeah, I, I tend to go more to the kind of core resources. That helps me for sure. I think I'm lucky that I come across so many amazing people that do brilliant things that send shivers down my spine and f- I find hugely inspirational. And, and and I think that everyone I've met who is on a similar path of trying to make a difference, I think everyone says it's it's not easy and it's challenging, but I, I've never come across anyone who says, I regret that, you know, mm. it's always people with a sparkle in their eye and love loving what they're doing. So yeah, I, I, I would say on, on tricky days, I just know it passes. And yeah, I just come back to my, my inner core feelings and within no time, I'm just full of enthusiasm again. Yeah. 
So where are you, what are your hopes for where we'll be? I mean, we talk about the goals 2050. That's a long way off. Mm-hmm. What are, what, do you have any personal hopes of where we'll be by 2030, which is only seven years away now? Yeah, I, I don't think I have really specific ideas around that. I, I feel already that actually even over the last 10 years, there is a massive shift. Mm-hmm. So many, I, I would say when I, when I really wanted to get into this area, people around me, including my family thought I was nuts. And <laughs> surely I must wear, you know, gray woolly socks and, you know, and be quite, quite crazy. And now, you know, yeah, I think it's just becoming so much more normal that people care about stuff. Is There is a big, big difference. And yeah, I just hope that continues and it really catches on and, we, we get to that whole early majority. And I, I think there's a very good chance that we will. I, I do hope there's going to be a lot more focus on the, the inequality piece, because I think that's a really scary one. And I hope mm. it doesn't, it doesn't get to crisis stage where we are proper. Yeah. Populist movements really kind of take over too much. And I think that's scary. I think there's still a, too much of a lack of awareness of what's going on. I, ho- I hope that will, that will get, that will change. Yeah. Aside from hiring you and reading your book, what actions can people take or business leaders take to trying to sort of drive some change and impact the impact we need? I, I think it's very challenging because it's usually not the first priority on the list. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think every person, every business has so many things going on. And it's typically mm-hmm. one of those, you know, yeah, I know it's important. I know my staff think it's important. My customers think it's important. And, you know, but how do I go beyond the kind of easy, the easy solutions? I, I think it's blocking out time, making mm. it a part of your ongoing meetings. It, it needs to be, you know, like not a separate thing, but part of the agenda, part of the reporting, part of your structure, your investment structure, working, you know, the investment piece, working with investors that understand this stuff. So you can become more ter- long-term focused or informing your shareholders that that's the road you want to take. And, and I, I think you have a huge resource to people in your, in your company. You know, if you organize a workshop, there's lots of free tools. You can use the impact wheel, but there's lots of other organizations that have free tools out, tools out there. And, and just spend some time brainstorming. What, what can we do? You know, and then, mm-hmm. and then just make sure you, you give people the time, the resources to do it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I said in most of the interviews, I want to create design thinking workshops where we bring people together, other guests to talk about solutions. One of the ones I'm trying to set up at the moment is with Vanessa Barboni Halleck, who runs Another Tomorrow, which is a sustainable women's fashion brand. Okay. You should definitely connect with her. Mm. And with Roman Lott, who's one of the co-founders of Adore Me, French, New York-based women's lingerie brand that sold, was acquired recently by Victoria's Secrets. And they, I, I met them back in 2019 and a competition they did internally to that was called Embrace Life, Disrupt Fashion. They wanted to be a leading fashion disruptor to drag the rest of the industry along with them, which has had an impact. And they did exactly as you said. They, they, they went to their staff and said, we don't have the answers, but you guys yeah. do. Let's come up with a competition. I was one of the judges on it. And I'm trying to do a, a, a workshop with them 
ideally in person, but it might be virtual. But I think it would be really good to get them together, plus you and a couple of other people, if you'd be open to it. Yeah, sounds great. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll let, I'll let you know when that is. Okay. Yeah, and also just as we go forward with our random collisions, our intentional random collisions, you know, we want to connect you with other people and also if if you're open to it, tap into your network so we can build this database of change makers and stories that can inspire. So I think that would be important if you're open to that. Yeah, um, great. Something I've been reading about, just an aside, over the last couple of weeks, it's not a term I encountered, and it's societal-level trauma. And it was someone that, in fact, it was Je- Jennifer, our, our mutual friend, that person mm-hmm. that recommended we speak to you, was Jennifer Skeen. And she mentioned Jack Saul, who's uh, Esther Perel's husband. And he is a lecturer at Columbia and a writer on societal-level trauma. And uh, when I start to read about it and look at it in relation to some of the other guests, someone like Lenore Anderson, you know, we've got societal-level trauma, which has been driven by COVID, economic disparities that it uncovered, mm-hmm. the increasing social injustice with CEO salaries rocketing and worker pay not going up. Mm-hmm. You know, even if we talk about minimum wage here in the US, it's crazy. The impact of social media on mental health, and particularly the work that's been published by Jonathan Haidt um, on the, the negative impact, of, particularly on teenage girls. Mm-hmm. All these things are connected and leading to the political polarization that, that exists in all countries at the moment and the consequential mental health impact of all these things gathered together. They're, these are issues beyond what any one company can do. I don't know what the answer is to this because it feels like there is a you know there's all these amazing things that are happening in the world and the people like you leading the charge for positive change but at the same time there seems to be this building trauma and i i don't know i just wanted to mention it and see if you have any thoughts i i think reflections so. on it yeah i i think so i think also i think there's a lot of young people who who feel really hopeless you know including my own son 20 years old you know and, and if i hear him some of the conversations he has with friends, I think they, they, they worry about the world and the future and feel quite powerless, which I think is really sad. And I, and I think that's partly also that we are being fed a lot of negative news. And there is obviously there is a lot of, of, of very scary stuff going on. But I think it's really important to to realize that things are changing and also to remind ourselves of how things have changed for the better. If you think about like the ozone layer, you know, in the 80s, yeah. you know, when companies or when countries, people come together. And I think also like what you're saying is trying to connect people up and joining the things together. You know, we, we can do, we can do these things. We totally can. Mm-hmm. And, and I, 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 I completely believe that we can and that we will, yeah. And obviously, you know, we are going slow and we should be going faster. But I think it's important to keep hope. And I think, therefore, also, it's really good to look at examples that actually do it and look at the outcomes. And, you know, when you're talking about like that CEO, for example, pay gap that's rocketing, it, it, I think one really good example there is also is if you compare Costco, for example, with Walmart. 
Costco is, is, is famous for leading on a really low pay gap by comparison. And how that pays off, again, maybe not on a quarter basis, but if you look at it over several years. And so they, they pay their average worker over 25 US dollars an wow. hour. Yeah. And so what is also then actually not really surprising is that their employee loyalty is nine years. At Walmart, it's three. So three times as mm-hmm. high. You can imagine, imagine the service levels to, to customers. And so Costco is, is well known for, they have an over 90% renewal rate of, 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 of customer, customer retention. And so if you, if you look at, you know, over a period of 2010 to 2020, their revenue growth and also their stock gains are also mm. three times higher compared to Walmart. And I wow. think these, yeah, these to me are the encouraging yeah. stories. Yeah. Because you hear a lot of, you know, kind of, you know, there's been criticism of Costco, like you're robbing the investors, uh, the shareholders, uh, you know, in, in favor of your staff. But when you see those figures and you see that it actually makes financial sense, you know, and I think there's some decisions to be made that don't instantly, uh, for me, it's more about the justice piece. It's, it's enforceable regardless and it should be regardless. But seeing the same with the Unilever, for example, that it makes sense often economically, that gives me hope because I think when, when people become more aware of that, it, it, it even makes even less sense to continue what we're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. Is before we wrap up and ask your last question, are there any things you haven't talked about that you wanted to? I don't think so. I don't think no? so. Okay. No, no. If they want to follow you or find you, I'll put obviously in the show notes where's the main platform that you publish on. I, I think the website, bigtreeglobal.net, is probably the best mm-hmm. place. I am not very good with social media. I'm trying very hard to get better at that. I, I, okay. I do post on LinkedIn occasionally. I've very recently started with Instagram. <laughs> I'm not very good at it. So, yeah. Okay. All right. We'll put that in the show notes. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, final question. Who do we interview next? Yeah. I didn't need to think about it long at all. Three amazing people that would be yeah. awesome to speak to. There is... Simon Boyle, who runs Brigade in London. But, but so Simon is, I think, a remarkable character. He is an excellent chef by trade, mm-hmm. like award winning. Went out to Sri Lanka after the tsunami and decided when he came home, I want to do something for people here. And so he runs first and foremost an amazing restaurant. And as part of that, he takes on people who have been homeless or are at severe risk of homelessness. And I think the words don't do it justice. He doesn't just train them up to become excellent chefs, but he transforms their, their lives. And mm-hmm. so you have people you speak to who, you know, were in prison and now have a job in a Savoy hotel. Yeah, I'd say he's, he's a total lead as a genius. He gets that balance right and has amazing outcomes. They have like an 80, 90% success rate of getting people into meaningful employment, whereas the typical rate is more around like 20%. Then there's Sandra Balay in the Netherlands. She runs Sea Talents. She also founded Sea Taste, which is a, a restaurant in the dark for people who are blind or deaf. So in, in the restaurant, it's, it's people who, who are blind, who work there as waiters. 
Um, and she realized that a lot of them were totally overqualified for the job. They were marketeers, trainers, accountants, but couldn't get a job because of their disability. And so she founded Sea Talents. And again, she has an investment banking background, understands business really well, and really focuses on the talents of people. And does that, yeah, matches them up into roles where they have real value. And so companies want more candidates because they're such an asset to the team. And she doubles revenue and impact each year. So a, a, an amazing, inspirational lady who's probably the most enthusiastic person I've ever met. Yeah, she's, she's, she'll be brilliant to speak to. And lastly, we mentioned briefly the, the project in India, Grassroots Journeys. Founded by Ainir Pinero and Uday Nanda. It's an amazing project and just two really fascinating characters with a really good heart. And yeah, I think they'll be amazing to talk to as well. Perfect. Well, when this is live, we'll follow up and we'll, if you can make the connection, it'd be great. Yeah, more than happy to. Excellent. Well, Melanie. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the time. It's been a wonderful interview, really inspiring. And I'm sure that's only the beginning of the conversation that we'll be having over the coming months and years. So thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Now, here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much and see you next time.